Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Good morning. How's everybody doing? We awake? Does, who's really excited about the fall weather that disappeared today? <laughs> 80 degrees all week. I'm so bummed. Thursday and Friday, I was just like wanting to curl up in a blanket and put on fall movies. And I, I guess that's what some men do. But um, <laughs> anyways, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Hey, this is our three, third year anniversary of being a church. Yeah. We are three years old. And that is uh, phenomenal for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that in the United States, there are 4,000 churches planted every single year, and 85% of all church, planted, uh, church plants that are planted in the U.S. fail. 85% of all church plants in the United States, 4,000 every year planted, fail after three years. And we're three years old and we're going strong. So good news, we're doing well. It's awesome. I'm just so excited. I remember three years ago being on a stage with Bill. We started a a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we had no idea what to expect. My wife and I were like, we really, when we started, we're like, we don't know if anyone's going to come. We don't know if we'll last a year financially. And it's just been amazing to see the stories. I was talking to Alyssa, who's doing uh, our sound or our lyrics and visual stuff. 
And she was just saying how blessed she feels. She's like, because of certain other people's obedience, she's been to be, uh, able to be obedient to other people and bless other people. And it's just amazing. Story after story after story of what God's done through uh, just people that said, hey, let's do this together. And we'll call it church and we'll figure it out as we go. So happy birthday. Really cool. We're starting a new series and it looks like the Bible equals a man and a woman or something. No, um, I don't know what that image is. I really liked it though. So cool. good works, <laughs> good work on that. But hey, grab a Bible. <laughs> um, I've been on vacation, I'm, so I'm feeling really energized, ready to preach. I'm more passionate about our city, and I'm more passionate about my wife, and I'm more passionate about Jesus, and the need to preach Jesus to the city. There are so many lost people, and we have the gift of life in Jesus. There are people living as dead, and we want to introduce them to the living, resurrected way of life. That's Jesus. And so I'm excited for this next season to preach to uh, Ephesians, which is a book that is really interesting. And and why do we study Ephesians? Well, it's fascinating. It actually is very theologically dense, it has the story of the cosmos in it. It will tell you God's plan for all of the cosmos. It will also describe for us what it's like to live in a full identity as beloved children of God. Um, we'll, talk, we'll talk about marriage, sex, alcohol, um, parenting. We'll talk about how to battle spiritual warfare. We'll talk about um, how to worship, how to be the church, how to come under the authority of those that have been commissioned by God to be uh, Ephesians 4 leaders. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It's a book on how to live. And in it is this massive story about what God is doing. So I'm excited to share this book um, and to teach through it. So today we're going to look at two different, two verses, that's all. Um, So if you would, before we get into Ephesians, I want to just introduce you to how the church in Ephesus got started. So go to Acts chapter 19. Um, Acts 19. And we'll start in verse 6. So um, we're going to skip around. And you do need a Bible if you don't have one. You can get online if you want um, to version on your, on your iPhone or any, any type of a smartphone device. But I recommend having a Bible, touching it, bringing it, reading it, and all that stuff. That's a good thing. Because um, it's true that if your iPhone breaks, you don't have a Bible anymore, right? So bring something that will be here that moth... Moths and rust do, do not destroy. Just kidding. Okay, Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19. Uh, so Paul sees some disciples and he lays hands and they begin to, they receive the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8 it says this, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became abs- uh, obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly malign the way. The way is the Christian community. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Um, There's a story of some Jews trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus but they don't have a relationship with Jesus and so the the demons beat them up um, which is really interesting. Skip down to verse 17. Um, 
so that uh, when when this became known to all the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, that that's what happened about the, the the demons beating up those guys that don't have a relationship with Jesus. They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed that they had what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, and the, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, or 50,000 days' wages, or 135 years' worth of income. In this, one, uh, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Um, it keeps going on. Paul's deciding to leave. And then the story goes that uh, about that time, verse 23, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we've received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus. Um, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. There's, a, there's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout all the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And they, they create a city uproar, a riot because of this. And then when they try to explain it, it says that for two hours they shout, great is, the Artemis, or, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is how the church in Ephesus begins. It begins with Paul going in, people that are practicing their faith but don't have the Holy Spirit. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul then rents out a lecture hall in Ephesus. You have to imagine um, what this, this kind of environment. Ephesians or Ephesus is a Hellenized community. That means at one point it was conquered by Alexander the Great. And everywhere that Alexander the Great went, he would set up. He didn't want to just uh, conquer cities. He wanted everyone to be Greek. That's where we get the idea of what it means to be Hellenized. And so he, he, would, he would build gymnasiums. These were places that you would um, practice sports, but also where you would study uh, philosophy, sculpture, art, beauty. Um, the Greeks worshipped the human body. Um, it's where, uh, the, uh, um, excuse me, Alexander the Great would build uh, amphitheaters and theaters for plays. Um, and it's just, uh, they would build all these uh, temples for, for people to worship the Greek gods. So uh, Ephesus is this um, Greek um, kind of melting pot. And so uh, you have Paul that goes in there and he, he just rents out a lecture hall because that's what you could do as a philosopher. And for two years, he's teaching daily in the lecture hall. And eventually, um, signs and wonders, there's such a spiritual atmosphere in Ephesus. This was the religious center of the world at this point. This was the uh, center place for worshiping Artemis. We're going to get into Artemis, but write down that name because Artemis is really important as we talk about Ephesians, as we talk about First and Second Timothy, um, which was uh, written to Timothy when he was the, leading the church in Ephesus. And Artemis was this uh, Greek god of fertility and, and um, reproduction and virginity. And she had a temple that, um, that was uh, in Ephesus that was 70,000 acres. It was one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. 
This was the epicenter for worshiping Artemis. She was seen as a, a god from all over the world that you would worship for prosperity, um, for having families, for reproduction, and all of these things. Um, and, and there was a, a temple, or there was a, 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 excuse me, a festival every year that about 750,000 people would come in from outside of Ephesus. Ephesus has about 250,000 people. So it's a big city in uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, 750,000 people would flood to Ephesus to worship Artemis once a year in an annual worship ceremony where they would practice temple prostitution. And it was just absolutely ridiculous. The, Ephesus was um, this religious a melting pot for not just Artemis and other sorcerers and, and different types of powers. There's, there's all these commentaries that talk about the, the climate and the landscape of, of the religious kind of cults that were in um, Ephesus. But one of the major ones that we're going to talk about is the imperial cult, the, the worshiping of Caesar. And how many of you have heard about that the, the Caesars were worshiped in the first and second centuries to the point where just an interesting fact that um, because Ephesus was a, a port city, it was a place of major trade, um, Christians were, were questioning whether or not they could actually practice their, their, um, their give their trades and sell and barter in, in the workplace, in the trade centers, because in order to enter into the marketplace, you had to uh, pay a tax and tribute and worship Caesar. And so what they would do to enter into the marketplace is they would, you would, you would give your tax and offer your worship to Caesar and um, you would then be given a mark, a blue dye or a purple dye on your hand or your forehead. And in the first century, the Christians called this the mark of the beast. I know some of you are like, what? That's, that's just history. So you have to imagine, as we put ourselves into this text, as we put ourselves into Scripture, I want to do everything I can to paint a picture of what it looks like to be in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. For what it looks like for Paul to begin a church that when people start hearing about God, they're touching handkerchiefs and they're being healed because that's the type of faith and spiritual awareness they have. Or where, when the city is in uproar because Jesus is affecting their economy. This is what happens when the Christians live out their faith in radical ways. And so that's, that's kind of the beginning story of Ephesus. And we'll be painting a better, Bill and I will be painting more and more kind of backdrops or background information as we go. Um, so what I want to do this morning is simply go to Ephesians, if you would, chapter 1. Um, I'm going to bounce around in, in the New Testament because I want to give us an introduction to this letter because it's important for us to know the, the method, the structure of the letter, and, and why um, Paul writes the way he does. So um, Paul, Paul um, writes to Ephesus after he leaves. And um, this letter was not just designed to go to Ephesus. It was designed to be a circulation letter that would go to all, all over the Roman Empire. Um, in fact, this is one of the most unique letters because um, you don't really hear about what's going on. There aren't any problems he's addressing. You read about Corinthians, there's, there's problems in the worship. People are, 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 are not um, doing the spiritual gifts in a proper order. He writes to Timothy about occasional issues. He writes to um, the book of Romans for a specific reason. This is more of a church homily. It's, more of, uh, a, a, it's designed for anyone that follows Jesus to be rooted in a certain way of living. 
And so this book is for all Christians everywhere. Um, and so we can, we can learn from it. So uh, let's, just, let's just read this um, real quick. I want to read the verses we're going to talk about. It says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we're going to talk about today. But I want to tell you what Paul does. Paul, in all of his letters, in most of his letters, excuse me, he begins describing what is called, what theologians call, call the indicative. And then he, he responds afterwards with the imperative. So the book of Ephesians is broken up into uh, three, two parts. Six chapters. The first three chapters is what theologians call the indicative. This is what God has done for you. The next three will be uh, from four, chapter 4, 5, and 6 will be the imperative. In view of what God has done for you, this is how you ought to live. You with me? So the book is broken up, and this is what God's done. This is how you live in view of what God's done. He does this all over the place. Go to Romans chapter 12. If you would, take a left in your Bibles. Go to Romans chapter 12. And stay straight on for uh, verse 1. It's, uh, so Paul, have, how many of you have read Romans? How many of you have been, okay, let's be honest. How many of you have really read Romans? How many of you, okay. So Romans is this theologically dense book where he talks about uh, humanity in the beginning and history and, and the gospel narrative uh, for 11 chapters. You see it in God's history. You see it with Israelites. And then, and then so there's, there's 11 chapters of this is what God's done. This is what it was like. Here who he is. Uh, there's no condemnation. All of this stuff to, to present finally that's all the indicative, the imperative, which the imperative in verse uh, 1 of chapter 12 says, therefore, in v- basically, in view of all of what God has done for the last 11 chapters, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in other words, 11 chapters, this is what, I'm going to keep my, my image, <laughs> yeah, I'm messing it up. This is what God's done for you now, because of what he's done for you. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because nothing can separate you from God's love. In view of that reality, live this way. Go to Philippians chapter 1. I just want to give you a couple more um, spots. So if you go past Ephesians, turn right past Ephesians and uh, in my best Siri voice and pause on verse 27, um, chapter 1, verse 27. So he'll give you a, a demonstration in verse 1 of Philippians of what, God, what God's done. And in verse 27, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In view of what God's done, now live in view of that gospel and what that means for your life. So this is a, a common, common thread that we see throughout scriptures. And the, just so you can see it in Ephesians, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Like I said, I'm bouncing all over the place. Stay with me. We're going to get a lot of the Bible today, bits and pieces. So he'll go for three chapters. Paul's going to say stuff like this, giving us our identity. He's going to say to those that are in Ephesus, you are blessed, you are chosen, you are predestined, you are given, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are included, marked, made alive, saved, raised up, seated with, created, brought near, fellow citizens and members being built together in God's household. This is who you are. And then verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In view of all of this, now, we can li- I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The book of Ephesians, first three chapters, is dealing with our identity and the gospel of what God has done for us. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, the whole book shifts to teach us how to live in view of what God's done for us as followers of Jesus. Are you with me? This is so important um, because this shapes everything about us. You see, how God sees us shapes everything else. What we do comes out of who uh, who we believe we are. What we do comes out of who we believe we are. This um, is what theologians call, this, this, this framework, this way of thinking, is what theologians call, this is a big word, eschatological realism. Eschatological realism. It's, eschatology is a study of the end times. And so in view of what God has done, in view of where we're going, uh, eschatological realism says that we are holy, we are blameless, we are chosen. This is what God, how God sees us. And now we are drawn or pulled into that reality. This is who we are. We're no longer defined by this stuff. We're defined by what God says we are. And we are pulled into this new reality. And um, the best way I can describe that to us is what happened to me on June 9th, 2007. I was 22 years old, and for 22 years, I learned how to live a life of singleness. I was groomed in self-centeredness. I was groomed in how, to, how the world works. Would you agree? That we learn how the world works as we grow up and as we're single. And so, for example, um, I knew that I would, uh, showering and cleanliness, if I, if I would shower only if I didn't surf at 22 years old. If I didn't surf that day, I would not take a shower. That is how I grew up. Uh, dishes, you know, they could be clean because you're going to eat on them again. Making the bed. Why would you make the bed if you're going to sleep in it? This is how the world works. If you're going to sleep in it again, why make the bed? Why would you even buy throw pillows? They're called throw pillows. If you can't sleep on them, why do you have them on the bed? This is an ongoing fight. Um, there's like so many of them. Good Lord. Uh, so uh, uh, banking, why do you need to live on a budget? This is how I grew up. I, I learned to live in a certain way of thinking, a, a paradigm. Food, as long as I was filled, it didn't matter what kind of food I ate. Fast food was fine. Hamburger Helper was just as good as a gourmet meal. It didn't matter whatever it was quick and easy. Um, dish soap, there was no preference to the monument of dish soaps that are at Albertsons. It didn't matter. The dishes were going to get clean enough. Um, what else? Toilet paper. It was just as fast as you can put it on the roll. It didn't matter if it was coming under or over. There was no preference either of one ply, two ply. But on June 9th, 2007, I stood in front of my family and my friends, and Bill Doctrum, our teaching pastor, stood before Alex and I, and he said, I now pronounce you husband. And from that moment on, I was a husband. Did I have any idea what it meant to be a husband? No. In fact, I was trained for the last 22 years on how not to be a husband. Would you agree? Some of you that are married are like, yes, amen, brothers, preach it, preach it. I learned how to not make the bed. I learned how to be selfish, how to, how to, how to move, d- nights out were with my bros, not my wife. Movies were whatever I wanted, not a compromise. Do you know what I mean? So everything was subject to being transformed into this new reality. So 
I was pronounced husband, but I had no idea how to be a husband, but I was invited into learning what it meant to be what I already was. Because of the covenant I made with my wife, I could be imperfect at being a husband. And so I learned how to do dishes. I learned how to buy the right dish soap, how to put the toilet paper on. It is, guys, over the top, okay? I will end your conflict. Um, Now, um, food became important. Chores became important. The throw pillows became important. Um, And all the other beautiful things that are in marriage. But I didn't, I didn't do those things to become a husband, right? I didn't, the, I didn't, I didn't care about, I, I didn't try to make the toilet paper work so that I could be a husband. I did it because I was a husband. Do you see the difference? That's the best illustra- illustration I can give you for eschatological realism. This is what God's done, and this is what he says you are. We'll talk about that. And out of that, we live. You with me? So, um, Paul will spend three chapters. Oh, this cross keeps getting in my way. (laughs) Who thinks the cross is so inconvenient? (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Come. He'll say, apart from Christ, we are dead in our transgressions and sin, followed we follow the ways of the world. We're ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, enslaved to our cravings and desires of our sinful nature, objects to wrath, separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to covenant and promise, without hope, without God, and far away. But for those of us that have said yes to Jesus, that we are in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen before the nation of the world, before the creation of the world, holy, blameless, adopted as sons and daughters, the given race, a given grace redeemed, forgiven, predestined, included in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, recipients of God's lavish grace, of God's glorious inheritance, alive in Christ, saved, raised with Christ. I'm getting tired. Seated with Christ. On, we are God's workmanship. We have access to the Father, Father, fellow citizens, members of God's household, and now building blocks of God's temple. This is who we are. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read verse 1 and 2 again. I want to drill this in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus. What does your Bible say? God's saints? What else? Anything else? Holy people, saints. That's it? Okay. Uh, God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, the word holy people or saints is the Greek word hagioi, and it means pure, holy, set apart, blameless, sacred, power washed from the inside out, clean and purged. Do you think that Paul is just writing to the church in Ephesus? Take a right, go back to Philippians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people. Take a right, go to Colossians chapter 1. Keep up with me, let's see if you can get there faster. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people. Go all the way back to Romans. Come on. Romans, uh, who got there before me? Romans 1, verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother um, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. Paul is very liberal. He is very generous with this word, saint, holy people. When I think about saints, I think about Catholicism, and I think about to be a saint in, in the Catholic church, you have to be dead. And you've had to do three miracles and live this crazy lifestyle. But Paul refers to every single person that has, has accepted Jesus that's part of the, the brotherhood and sisterhood, the community of faith. Groups of people that are 10, maybe 20, 30 people in homes. He says, you are holy. You are blameless. You are set apart. You are sanctified. You are saints. And someone's child is calling for mommy and that is so sad. <laughs> He, he, he says that when you open yourself up to Jesus, you accept a whole new identity. You are no longer defined by what you think you have been defined by. You are now seen through God's eyes as holy, set apart, and blameless. If you are a follower of Jesus, and if someone asks you, what does God think of you? And you respond to anything other than blameless, holy, sacred, beloved, perfect, then it's a lie. Because that's how God sees you. Period. How many of us are walking into this church this morning thinking that we have to apologize to God for the list of stuff we did this week? God says, you're holy. You're blameless. You're set apart. How many of us walk into our, our, our work weeks with the baggage of things that people have said to us at some point in our lives and all we're trying to do is live our lives in a way that redefines what they said we were? that past relationship that has simply been carried on as baggage into every other new relationship. You know what I'm talking about? It's something that happened in the past, you live with it in the present, and you're going to carry it into the future. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something that you've done. Maybe, um, I, I mean, let's just, let's think about this. Someone had an eating disorder at some point in their life, and it's absolutely harmful in their past. But now they live, I'll just speak for myself. I had an identity, I have an identity issue. I never think I'm good enough. I never, I, it may surprise you, I was, literally, I was a fat kid in high school. And I say that liberally because uh, that's what I was. I was 5'6", 42 waist, about, chunky, played water polo, wore a Speedo. Lord Jesus, help me in that pool. <laughs> Couldn't get in the pool fast enough. I developed a deep self-awareness that has plagued my entire life. Back then, I, I wouldn't eat, took dieting pills at 15. I lived in a way, was I <laughs> it's fine, these kids are awesome. But I lived in a way that was defined by what everyone else said I was. Everyone else said I was, or at least what I thought they said I was, and what the mirror, the thing that I saw in a mirror. And then, and, and then I began to walk with Jesus, and then I began to realize that actually that is a, a lie that was a sinful nature, that, or even worse, that is the enemy. Give me words like ugly, fat, to where I was 160 pounds, six foot two, standing in front of the mirror, looking at the fat in the mirror. This, I mean, we're talking, this is my reality. There are moments in life where I stand on the stage and God, just say, God, help me to just be myself and know that I'm good enough. You know what that, that journey has been? It's that something in my past has defined my present and today I'm saying that's no longer going to define my future. 
Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. I want to paint this uh, in the best way I can of what Paul's after. And this is so important for us to grab. I'm passionate about this stuff. So much of Ephesians is identity, which is so much of my brokenness. So I love talking about how we can become fully alive in Christ. And God wants us to be fully ourselves, flourishing as we are in our physical bodies here and now. Renewed minds. For those of us that struggle when we look at the mirror, God's going to redefine that for us. Give us a new way of thinking about ourselves. That's amazing. Colossians 3. Here's another example. Since then that you have been raised with Christ. Verse 1. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. You died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Look at what Paul just did. Your, uh, for you died your old nature, dead on the cross because of what Jesus did. And your current life, your present reality, God has hidden you in the Trinity. Your life is hidden in Christ, in God. In other words, you're wrapped up in the Trinity. That is what God sees when He sees you. He sees His Son. And then when Christ appears, your, your life appears, then you will also appear I'm sorry, let me read this again. When Christ, who is your life, appears in the future, then you will also appear with him in glory. Past, present, future. That's amazing. I haven't the foggiest idea what that means. (laughs) Except that you no longer have biblical justification to call yourself a sinner if you follow Jesus. That's the only thing I think it means for us right now is that we no longer have biblical justification to call ourselves sinners if we are in Jesus Christ. Do we sin? Oh yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Do we continue to sin in the same areas of our lives? Yes. Absolutely. But that is no longer how God sees us. We don't have to put Jesus back on the cross. He already did that for us one time back then, once and for all. These, this is a radical, this has radical implications. Your life is hidden with Christ. Uh, Paul calls us saints. So what's up, saints? What's up, holy people? Look to the person next to you. Do they look like holy people? No. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a saint. Turn to your friend. Say, you're a saint. Say it. You're holy. You're holy. Say it. Get it inside. You're a saint. You're holy. Every other place that you can find your identity has been overshadowed in Christ. This is what this, this, this book's going to teach us. That yes, our sin, our work, our amazing calling for God, our families, our children, our friends, our school, our past, everything we have has been hidden in Christ. And that becomes our primary identity. Think about that. What do you attach your identity to? So, 
why is this so important? Um, I just want to focus on that one word. Why is it so important for us to grab that we are saints? That we are holy? That we are blameless? That we are set apart? That we have been power washed? I believe um, that most of us live our lives being pushed from behind. Most of us live our lives in a way that we have done something, we have experienced something, we have been told something about ourselves that in our past, and that's created a great deal of guilt and shame and pain or fear. Pain is, we, and so from, it's from our past, and so it pushes us forward in a way where we don't want to feel that pain anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? So we do things a certain way. We enter in rela- relationships and community cautiously because that community hurt us back then. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or fear. So we begin to, to do things so we, we, we avoid certain areas, certain people, certain things in our life. So we, we're avoiding what's been done to us or what we're afraid will happen to us. And these are all things that are pushing us from behind. And when Jesus, or when Paul says, you're saints, you're holy, you're blameless, your identity's hidden in Christ, it's, this is the reality, and it's drawing us forward, not pushing us from behind. And for us, we have to grab the significance that our identities are hidden in Christ, that we are saints. Because if we don't understand that reality, then it doesn't matter how we live because we're going to be living from the past. Transformation has occurred. You are no longer who you once were, according to the Gospel of Ephesians. Your identity is no longer in question. Nothing is holding you back. We stumble, we sin, but we don't have to put Jesus back on the cross. Are you with me? So, saints, holy people, garden, you guys are, if you've accepted Jesus, you're a saint. You're holy. Your life is hidden in God. And we no longer have to live with that list. We no longer have to live with that baggage. We no longer have to see ourselves as anything other than beloved. The greatest thing about this too, by the way, is that this is the gospel and there are no other religions out there like this. Study any other religion. Uh, Buddhism, yes. It's all built around becoming a good person so that one day you can become and get to this place of nirvana. Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, uh, that's one of the most depressing religions there are. JWs. Because there's a set amount of people that have been saved and then the, the, you can study world religions and, and that there's now, they're, they're, they're working, doing door-to-door evangelism to earn their place in what's not heaven but what's second to heaven. Literally, that's what they're doing. Their, their, their religion says you have to earn it to get here. Uh, Islam is the same way. To get to paradise, you have to do all of these things. And our God says, I've done it. This is who you are. So now live in view of that. Amen. You with me? So that's, that's the message. That's what we're going to be developing as we go about in this book. It's amazing. I just, it's such a gift. Uh, that we can explore this book as a family. I'm so excited just to, to talk about real things and how this affects our lives. And I mean, so, so one thing I just want to challenge you. One, some of you are here and you haven't accepted Jesus. Nowhere in the scripture does it call Christians sinners. I want to invite you into the, to being redefined. Some of you need to be redefined. Two, so many, so many of us are standing saying, yes, Darren, I get that. But all we see is the old self. All we can see 
is the, um, the, the old way of living single. Do you know what I'm talking about? That false identity, the indulgences we have. I mean, the indulgence. I, I think this is a, a sneaky one. Um, um, yes, there's major sin issues that we have. So, I mean, literally, there are many of us here struggling with major issues that are self-destructive. But then there are like little sneaky things, um, like learning to rest outside of Jesus, resting in maybe a couple of glasses of wine, resting in numbing ourselves with social media. We overindulge in television. We overindulge in inappropriate relationships that have no meaning. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, that, that's part of the old self that we need to take off. Especially this generation, we, we've lost the sense of guilt and we do whatever pleases us and we never think, see anything wrong with us always in our conversations being on our phone or being the first thing we check uh, when we wake up is our, 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 our social media or the first thing that we turn on is we want to wake up early enough to watch more TV. I mean, there are little things in our lives and, and that's just, I'm just speaking from my own heart. These are areas, but like there are other things as well. G- the disobedience of, of not following through with community group. When God said follow through, that becomes an old behavior that needs to be transformed. Are you with me? So some of us literally need to be reminded of what we do now as saints is we take off the old self and we put on the new self. So today, it's just a reminder. What are those areas? You're no longer defined by them that you need to take off. For me, it's a reminder that I'm beloved, I'm good enough, that I, I'm, I don't have to please God anymore. Do you know that, how great would that be to literally live fully freed in my own identity? That would be amazing for some of us. Others of you, it's different things. Are you with me? So that's our, we're going to have a, a response time. So can I get you up here, Pete? Um, some of you, it could be the way you deal with your finances, the laziness. I mean, all of this is, we're not changing these, these things to become a better Christian. God already views us that way. Cool? Okay, one last response. Um, and this might fail miserably, but I'm just going to go for it. Whatever. Markers here. Uh, and Billy has a bunch more, right? Where's Billy? Okay, yeah, can we pass these markers out? Um, I was reading in Romans. Maybe you go there real quick with me. Why not? We haven't gone there enough, right? <laughs> Romans 16, the end of the book this time. And this, is, this one, I think, is really, uh, this is for me, because I, I need this one. It says in verse 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Markers. (laughs) What the heck does that mean? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know what I think this morning it's going to mean? For so many of us, Satan is the father of lies. We live, so many of us, with lies spoken over our lives. I've named so many. Not good enough, ugly, um, sinner, failure, um, loser. Um, we 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 could say lustful. We could say all the things that have been spoken to us or about us. This is never gonna happen. All of those lies. And as a way of just practice, I want us to take markers and literally write the lies at the bottom of our feet on our shoes so that as we walk, 
we would be reminded that the God of peace will soon crush the father of lies under our feet. Is that cool? We're going to worship. Some of you are like, I brought the wrong shoes. <laughs> but this is a good practice. What are, those, what, are the, what are those words that every time somebody says something, you're like, oh, that hit me. Put that on your shoe. And as we walk out, we can stomp those lies out of our lives. Amen? Okay, so there's some, there's some markers here. I'll put some at the cross. We're going to worship, and we'll respond in a little more, uh, uh, with some worship. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this place, this community. Uh, it's so freeing that we can laugh, we can worship, and uh, we can be real with our junk. Thank you that you don't see that anymore, that that doesn't define us anymore, that all those lies that we've lived under, all those words that have been spoken to us, that we've spoken from within, are no longer our identities. That you've done all the work and all we have to do is receive. I pray, Jesus, for the grace that you extend us, that we would actually give grace to ourselves this morning. That we just receive the lavish grace you, you bestow upon us. Help us to, to do the work, God, of, of taking off the old and putting on the new. Holy Spirit, would you lead us as we respond with a spiritual act of worship, of writing lies on our feet in your name.
never thought we need your spirit, oh God, to stir up the fire.